Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with Seven Sager Logician, who scored a 171 on his June 2021 LSAT. We speak about all three sections of the test and what strategies he implemented over his nearly two years of studying to improve from his mid 140s diagnostic score. So, without further ado, please enjoy. I have Seven Sager Logician here with me. Uh, Logician, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about your LSAT. First of all, congratulations on getting a 171 on the June flex. How does that feel? Yeah, feels uh, very, very good to finally be done with the test and move on with my life. I bet. It was a strange feeling. Yeah, I think you told me that altogether, it was just shy of two years to complete this journey. Did you, did you think it would take that long? No, not at all. So I think it ended up being about a year and nine months, maybe 10, mm-hmm. somewhere around that ballpark. No, when I started, I definitely did not think it would take that long, nor did I have the initial goal of scoring what I did. How long did you think it was going to take and where did that idea come from? So initially, after graduating university, I was really torn on what path I was going to take, whether it was going to be law school or a PhD in economics, as you know, that's something I'm really passionate about. So I took about five to six months to really just solidify that decision. And ultimately, I ended up with law school. So took a brief skim on the internet about the LSAT and kind of read up a little bit more, learned, learned a little bit more. And then I took a diagnostic. And obviously, I didn't really know too much about what that score meant. Then I found out. What did you get? I want to say it was like a 145 or 146. It was one of those. And then I found out, okay, that's the 50th percentile median is about a 150 or 151. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, not not the best start. And of course, at the time, I think this is true for most people who start. Most of the information online leads you to the three month kind of fallacy, I, I guess, if you will, mm-hmm. that you study for three months, you take it, and that is all you will pretty much improve on the LSAT. So that was a little discouraging. I did not anticipate it taking that long whatsoever. But in a nutshell, I started off getting the power score books and I read through those pretty quickly. And I remember this is in no way meant to be a critique of their material. But for me, I remember reading it and I just at the end of it, I was just I didn't feel like I really had a much clearer understanding on the fundamentals of the test. Mm -hmm. I knew that that was their approach. And for some people, it works. For me, it didn't. Mm -hmm. So I ended up finding Seven Sage. And I first started with a free account. And after creeping the forums and everything, I said, okay, this seems like a pretty good place to start my journey, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. at the time, my goal was just to get a 160 or maybe low 160s, mid 160s, because I just wanted to go to a regional school. Slowly as I began studying and progressing and just seeing more questions, I really thought, hmm, this test, I feel like I could potentially do really well at this test. And that kind of paired with the fact that I was just learning more about different law schools and the outcomes and the law school application process and how heavily weighted the LSAT is really led me to kind of change my perspective and also my goal. 
Yeah. What what about the test attracted you to it? It sounded like initially you just wanted to kind of improve 10-ish points from your diagnostic, which you figured maybe wouldn't take that long. But then as you study for it, you're saying you kind of started to see behind how this test works, right? You think you can do much better. When did that switch happen? Little sidebar here. I'm a pretty competitive person. You know, I grew up <laughs> playing sports mm-hmm. my whole life and mm-hmm. I played sports in college. So as I kind of started progressing, I realized that doing the questions on timed, at least, I realized, okay, you know, I was slowly sort of figuring them out and starting to see maybe patterns and really going through the core curriculum was just a complete game changer for me because I left the core curriculum with an understanding, I would say a complete understanding of what is happening on the LSAT. Nice. Whereas with the power score, I didn't really have that. There was sort of still this cloud of mystique surrounding what was actually taking place uh, you know what yeah. was transpiring when you sit down and you take this test uh-huh. and it was kind of around that time that I said yeah you know what let me just try but I do want to preface this by saying when I did come to terms with that decision you know at that point I I was fairly knowledgeable about the statistics surrounding these scores and whatnot I really made that decision knowing that there's a high possibility that I could not end up with this score. Yes. And I just want to emphasize that because I think it's very important to be pragmatic in your approach to the LSAT. Yeah. It's very, very easily, it's very easy to get caught up in 7th Sage because there's so many highly motivated people on 7th Sage. Yeah. It's probably a real sample bias. You're seeing a lot of people get to the 170s, and that's because they end up on 7th stage. These are people who are very, very motivated to get to their goal. Yeah, And you don't see as many of the posts of the people who maybe tried and didn't make it there. I completely agree. I mean, to put a fine point on it, let's be really realistic. 170 or higher score is 98th percentile, and that just means 2% of test takers get that score or higher, right? So most people don't. Yeah. And the posts that we see on our forums are self-selected posts. If you think about it, you're someone who studies for a long time, and then you end up, as you did, logician, with success. You post about it. We see it. Everyone sees it. I see it. But then, like, some doppelganger version of you that did the same thing, but unfortunately didn't hit the target score, won't post. So we just won't see it. So that's the self-selection phenomenon right there. It is really, and this is probably the hardest thing, is to be realistic about assessing yourself and about assessing your priorities to make this hard decision about how much longer to study. What goal should I set for myself? That's probably one of the toughest decisions to make in this whole LSAT process. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I will say also, I <laughs> there were multiple points throughout my journey where I did almost, well, I, I came very close, let's say, to calling it quits, mm-hmm. just kind of mentally defeated at certain points. Mm-hmm. But again, like I said, that competitive nature within me, <laughs> I guess, was what was really <laughs> driving me, you know, and kind of blocking out the negative external forces that were at play, let's just say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that. Do you want to tell us about that in terms of how do you want to frame it? Do you want to frame it in terms of the sections that got you, the specific sections that got you? Or do you want to frame it in terms of the external forces that maybe we're trying to whatever mysterious external forces trying to get you to stop? I would say we should include both, you know, okay. maybe yeah. touch on both. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think I think they're both equally important. Okay. In, the, in their own way. Okay. Let's talk first about the LSAT itself mm-hmm. and each individual section. Mm-hmm. 
I was one of those people that really struggled with logic games. Mm. And that's why when I first found a foolproof method, I was like, wow, that was my first time when I was like, okay, I'm really feeling good about this. Mm -hmm. So I remember I foolproofed games 1 through 35, or PTs 1 through 35, the game section, yeah. probably about 10 times. Okay, so you actually took what I said literally to oh, print out yeah. 10 times. <laughs> okay, I, yeah. I, I, I took it quite literally. <laughs> okay. And I would do a section a day, yeah. you know, six days a week. Yeah. And I still wasn't seeing the results that I wanted. Yeah. It was frustrating because I knew I was good at games, but for whatever reason, everything that I had learned and all the inferences that I memorized weren't translating mm -hmm. when I would sit down and take a new timed section. Right. I had to take a step back and really see what's going on, what's causing this lack of translation of my understanding into my actual execution. Mm -hmm. That also required getting some other people feedback from others who have kind of been there or who have scored highly. And a lot of them were telling me what I already knew in terms of the process of foolproofing and then how to go about it and all of that. At that point, I was getting a little bit frustrated right? because I was like, okay, this is it seems to be working for everyone else, but it's not working for me. Right. I don't remember if it was a study partner or just a fellow seventh sager who I spoke to one time and they kind of started asking more about my actual approach while I'm taking the section timed. They started touching on some things that I didn't really think about as much per se. And also, obviously, your videos, especially of the newer PTs, you start talking a lot more like, for instance, when the rule substitution questions are introduced, mm -hmm. you start, I think you always advise that probably 95% of people should just skip it right away. Yeah. Or just take a brief look and then if nothing sticks out, skip it. Yeah, I mean, no brainer. That's the curve. That's intended to be the curve breaker question. Yeah, yeah. And at this point, I hadn't really integrated skipping strategies and all mm. this into my LSAT studies as a whole. I was still in games kind of getting trapped by those questions. Ah, uh, right. If I'm understanding what you're saying, it sounds like you were focused more on the logical substance of the games, meaning trying to make inferences, mm -hmm. trying to figure out as many of the inferences as you can, trying to figure out generic repetitive inferences that the games try to set up. And that's what Blind Review focuses on. But you were seeing a gap in untimed performance over to timed performance. And that gap you think is explained by a lack of attention to the form, the methodology, how you approach the games, for example, implementing some kind of timing strategy. And perhaps there are others that you might I want to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Well put. That's precisely it. I realized blind review is just a completely different thing. Yeah. I was treating my process too similar to that of taking the section untimed, you know, right. like you said, you just touched on trying to draw as many inferences as possible, right? You know, being over meticulous about things, yeah, trying to be too rigorous with the answer choices. And it was really the first time I think that I sat down and took a new section. And I said, Okay, you know what, I'm gonna, especially with the easier games, I'm gonna pretty much try to take the bare minimum that's necessary yeah. to get through these games. Yeah, yeah. And that includes answer choice selection. If I see an answer that I'm 80% sure is right, yeah. even if I haven't actually done the logic to check it or check my game board, yeah. I'm just picking it, I'm flagging it, and I'm moving on. Yeah. 
And the very first time I did that, I think I ended up finishing a section with five minutes left. And I, Whoa. I was, yeah, yeah, I was on cloud nine. <laughs> yeah, that dramatic transformation, I think, is only possible because of your solid foundations in having done your meticulous foolproofing. Because I think if it wasn't for that solid foundation, I don't think just a switch in your approach can produce such dramatic results. No. You're, you're definitely right about that. I already had the necessary skill set at that point. So again, this is more of a unique situation. And I think obviously, this is something that you want to develop, you probably want to have your fundamentals in check first, yeah. before you kind of try to jump to strategy and all of that stuff. Because without those, you're pretty much just uh, evading the actual problem. Yeah, I want to ask, because in the later games videos, I definitely switched up my own approach to logic games where, you know, when they give you that first acceptable situation question, Yeah. I now the way I do it and the way I show you how to do it in the videos is I, as I go through the setup of the game rule by rule, I, as I set the rule up, I use that rule to eliminate an answer choice. And then I move on to the next rule, set the rule up. So by the time we're done with our game board setup, that first question is done already. That was a formal change in how I approach games. Was that something you did too? Or did you stick with the way I used to do them? Yeah, no, I will say it's good that you bring this up because that's another thing that was happening with me in games is that I didn't have a uniform approach, mm -hmm. right? I feel like that's really something that you need mm -hmm. on the LSAT. You have to make the process as mechanical as possible and not in that like you're not fluid if you, right, know, you end right. up in a situation that you haven't been in before, but mechanical in the sense that no matter what test you're doing or what section you're doing, you have a process in place right. that's going to be the same every time. Yes. Yes, that's so important. Yeah, like you said, that first question, the acceptable list question, I was doing it both ways, mm, okay. you know, yeah. to be honest, in the earlier stages. And then I realized, okay, I have to kind of be stricter with myself. Yeah. And then ultimately, I started doing it the latter way mm. that you had said, okay. or the most recent way that yeah. you started doing them. Yeah. Another thing I want to point out with the acceptable list question, because most people don't do this. I know I didn't. But one thing that was really useful is really rewriting that first question, the answer choice. Mm -hmm. Once you answer the acceptable list question is rewriting that and having it handy on your paper, because oftentimes you'll be able to use that to even, you know, if oh, not answer I another see. question, I you'll see. be able to use it to eliminate other answer choices. Oh, that's choices. cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's, yeah. that's not something I had thought about because the way that they present that question and the answer choice, it doesn't, well, first of all, it's not on your game board because your game board is on yeah. scratch paper. And second of all, it's probably not in the right form because we use abbreviations right. to represent the game pieces. They might not. Let's say answer choice C is correct. C might actually just list out every single word. It's like six people on a bus. They might actually right. list out the six names, whereas we would just write the first letter of the names exactly. as a representation. So it's actually kind of hard to use that as a reference unless you translate that into our A game board, A hypothetical world on, yeah. on your game board. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's also one of the things I started doing that really helped. Another thing I will say going off of that idea is really recycling your old game boards. Mm. I know people definitely are aware of the strategy and they know about it. It's not really a secret. But when I say recycling, I really mean like absolutely maximizing the utility that you can get from each game board. Because mm -hmm. the more I started focusing on this, 
the more I realized I could get a lot more、mm. out of these. A lot of times, if it's even just one answer choice that they can help you eliminate, you、yeah. know, from a could be true or a must be true or must be false, or you have that could be true game board,、yeah. that hypothetical world that you've already created. Yeah, use it. Use it to your advantage. Right, for sure. That's LG. You want to talk about LR or RC next? I guess we'll go LG, LR, RC. Okay, like you just said. Okay, yeah. So logical reasoning was probably my favorite section from the get go. Yeah. Not that I was good at it from the get go, but it was just like <laughs> he just liked how、know. bad you were at it. <laughs> I liked, I liked sucking. Yeah, no, we'll probably have to edit that out. But <laughs> no, it was still fun,、yeah. even though I was not very good at it. I enjoyed the process of doing LR. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the process of learning LR. I would say because for me, it changed my view. <laughs> Of the world,、yeah. everyday arguments and a lot of stuff you see in real life that transpire,、yeah. especially politicians and <laughs> such. I guess I'll start with my actual approach、mm-hmm. to how I started kind of studying logical reasoning. I should preface this by saying, going through the core curriculum, I said I had started with a 146 diagnostic. I took about four to five months to go through the core curriculum,、mm-hmm. and when I say I went through the core curriculum. I went through it with a fine tooth comb.、Wow. Like I think maybe there were a couple in reading comp where I, I didn't do them at the end. A couple of the last problem sets, but、yeah. pretty much everything else was done,、yeah. and it was done with extreme scrutiny. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I did not rush through it.、Yeah. I did not move on to another lesson until I really understood what was happening. Yeah, and especially with the fundamental aspects of the curriculum. I mean, conditional logic, causation, existential quantifiers,、yeah. these kind of things, because that's going to be the foundations of your understanding of this test.、Right. I can't emphasize how important it is to really not rush through the core curriculum, because if you do, you're only shooting yourself in the foot. You're、right. prolonging the inevitable. You're going to have to return to the core curriculum eventually. Yeah, and if you do it well, odds are. I mean, at least personally speaking, I never once went back to the core curriculum after. Granted, I had my notes and such,、right. but I really came out with a strong understanding.、Right. As you put the lessons you learn from the core curriculum into practice when you take prep tests, and as you blind review and as you review the questions you got wrong or iffy about, each time you do that, you're giving yourself an opportunity to revisit what you learned. From the core curriculum, and you're giving yourself a chance to refine that understanding, that knowledge, and you can do that refinement through going back to the actual lessons, or you can do that by looking at your notes, or you can do that by just consulting the theory that you've already absorbed in your mind and modifying that theory to better conform to the actual question you're up against. But however you do it, it's the foundation is is that it's the foundation. That's the theoretical framework through which you understand all of these questions. So some way you have to somehow you have to have that theoretical framework. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So because of that strong understanding that I came out with, I think my first PT post core curriculum was a 158. Nice.、Um, Sorry, ten then, points. Yeah, and then the blind review was already in the 170s at that point. Wow. Yeah. See, that's really good. I mean, the blind review score really is that's 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 your theoretical maximum because that's the yeah yeah that's like the untimed full self reflection as much times you need see what you can do. And I will say it was kind of around that time period too, where I was like, I might be able to do this. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of my goals. Yeah. So 
Now, jumping back to the logical reasoning, okay. you know, I just wanted to give the backstory of course. kind of behind that. What I realized is I took a handful of PTs after the core curriculum, and they were all kind of in that 158, 159 range. Yeah. I took like four or five, and all of them were 158, 159, and all the blind reviews were in the 170s. So at that point, I was kind of getting a little discouraged because I had taken four or five PTs and my score hadn't moved, even though I knew that I understood a lot more than that score was reflecting. As your blind review evidences. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it took me from the high 150s, it took me a couple of months just to break through to the 160s. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good segue into my logical reasoning kind of approach to studying. When I started doing LR after the CC, initially I was doing timed logical reasoning work, but I realized there were patterns in the questions that I was missing, yeah. especially, obviously at that point I was missing most of the harder questions, yeah. but I was also missing easy questions that I was already good enough at that point to get. Oh, okay. So I'm talking the one and two star questions and three stars that for whatever reason went over my head in right. time. But then once I would look at it in blind review, you'd be like, OK, I, I got the yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, why am I not understanding this under time? Obviously, there's a time pressure and everything. It's a completely different task when right. you're doing it timed. But I realized for me, at least, I took a step back and I started doing untimed work again mm, Okay. in logical reasoning. I think my logical reasoning at that point, I mean, I can't tell you what it was timed, maybe like, I don't know, minus eight or nine or 10, some, something like that. Mm -hmm. High 150s, I don't know. But even when I would do them untimed, I was still losing most of my points in blind review. Well, all of them to logical reasoning mm -hmm. and reading comprehension. Mm -hmm. So I realized, okay, let me see if I can just get my logical reasoning untimed to consistent perfect. Yeah, or, nice. You know, minus one. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So yeah. That was my, my mindset because I thought at least once I do it this way, I will know that everything else to come is just going to be figuring out the execution under time. Oh, that's such a right? smart approach. Yeah, yeah. Because if you can get your untimed LR section to zero or minus one, then everything else, like you said, just comes down to a matter of time management, right? Like you'll have a sense of, okay, how long did it take me overall to complete this LR section? And then you can have like a micro breakdown of how long, which questions, for example, took me five minutes. There's no way I'm going to spend actually five minutes on one question under time conditions. But that's good information to have, right? That low, it's question 17 that's doing this to me. Question right. 17 is the one that's costing me five minutes, which, okay, that's just too expensive to get right under time pressure. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what I was going to say next is that doing it untimed, you're still able to measure the relative time difference yes. between the questions. Yes. It gave me a good gauge of my own sort of response yeah. to certain questions. Yeah. And it also helped me kind of realize both under timed and untimed, obviously, which questions are going to be the ones that based on my initial response, it's probably going to be a bad investment of time. Right. Yes. That's really important self-knowledge to have. Yeah, definitely. Because you don't want to be in a situation where you're you're taking time sections and you can't really pinpoint what's going on. What questions am I missing or am I spending too much time? And great. Luckily, the Southern Sage Analytics is so great, you know, and it shows you your time on each question mm -hmm. and stuff. So that helps. But what you won't be able to recapture perfectly is your thought process in that given moment when you're taking it timed. Yes. 
Yes. And it's definitely easier to do that untimed. Totally, totally. Oh man, that is so important. Like the analytics will show you the breakdown of how much time you spend, but analytics isn't recording your subjective psychology in the moment. Your memory has to be doing that. You need to know what it feels like initially upon encountering a question that at the end, analytics told you, oh, look, you dropped three minutes on this question. Yeah. You have to remember what it felt like subjectively. That's how you can begin to build a timing strategy. It's around those signals. Yeah. It's a sort of classical conditioning, you know, mm, is what you're yes. doing with yourself yeah. and your mind. Yeah. Once I got to that point untimed, I slowly started integrating time and I would just systematically lower the time once I was able to replicate those results mm -hmm. under said time. So maybe I started off with 50 minutes. And then once I was able to get that score in that time, I would bump it down to 45 and mm -hmm. 40 and so forth. Mm -hmm. It was hard. That was, a, that was a hard part. Yeah. Obviously, the closer you get to actual time conditions, the time really starts to impact you significantly more. Yeah. So I realized also at that point, it's just not a realistic goal to try to get zero to minus one on every section under the time frame, at least for me, I realized that there's that statistical variance where no yes. matter how good I would get at LR, whether I could get perfect untimed, there's going to be that range of, let's say, zero to minus three yes. or even even a minus four on an yeah. awful day. That that was something that I really had to come to accept. Yeah. And I had to just work with it moving forward. I think it's the optimal strategy to accept rather than it's a superior strategy to accept rather than not accept it. Because accepting it allows you to have four questions where I just I can give up on like three questions and just bag the time to spend on other questions and improve my odds of getting those questions right. Yeah. And I will say the further along I went, the lower the variance did right. get. But yeah. ultimately it didn't get to zero to one ever, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's how you should approach it. I think I mean you you as in the generic you. That's how people should approach it because you take a look at what your performance actually is and that actual performance that gives you a band of like, oh I'm I'm like minus five to minus ten. Okay, great. Accept that's your band and then push it tighter a little bit, right? Maybe I'll do minus five to minus eight. So let's see if I can do minus five minus eight. Well, that tells me that I can miss up to minus eight questions per LR, which then informs your timing strategy of which questions to focus on, which questions to skip over and back the time to spend on other questions. The idea is that as you progress through LR, you're ever, ever narrowing and lowering that band. Yeah. The reason I said I had to accept this is because, trust me when I say I've met people who, in their mind, they think that they need to be at that consistent whatever it is, minus one or minus three or minus five, mm -hmm. whatever it is, they think that they have to be able to consistently replicate that to two or within a point, you right. know, a point or two. And that's just, at least for me, I think that's the wrong approach to take. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to touch on next is really the approach to studying mm -hmm. and tackling the LSAT because I quickly realized how emotional I was getting mm -hmm. during this experience. And when I say emotional, I mean tying how I was feeling to a PT score right, right? or right. to a section. I quickly realized that it was really, really counterproductive to do that. I realized that I have to tackle the test like you would a sport or a job. And that really meant taking an objective approach. Taking that approach in mind, I started looking at a bad PT score as just more data. And it was actually a good thing in a sense, because my goal, of course, was to try to eliminate 
those lower scores. And that really meant understanding and seeing what was happening. And guess what? If you never got them, well, you wouldn't know. For instance, if you walked in on test day and you got that low score, you would be scratching your head thinking what went wrong. But when you have this kind of empirical data set to look at beforehand, maybe you can figure out that, okay, this is my statistical range. And I know usually the factors that are contributing to me being on the lower end or the upper end or just in the middle of my range, you know? Yeah. It's hard, though, not to be emotionally determined by your prep test. It's extremely hard. And I think I would say that is probably where I made the most improvements. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, in my LSAT studies and this whole journey. I think having a bit more detached is hard, but... Everyone should try to detach themselves from the score that they get. Like you're not identical to your score. Yeah. I think it ultimately just stems from comparison yeah. to others, really, right? It really it does. Yeah. It's coming from. And it's just like, should never, you should never ever compare yourself to others because. I agree. That's a recipe for unhappiness in anything in life. You should just. I mean, like, you want to compare yourself to somebody, compare it to your past self. If you have to tie your identity to something, tie your identity to, did I give it my best today? Did I put in good effort? Am I seeing improvement? That's the metric. Don't let the score, don't let the results be the metric, because you really can't control that. At the end of the day, the test is a comparative test, right? It's not just you in a vacuum. It's, it's you plus everybody else, and the whole thing gets curved. So it's by necessity a comparative to other people test. So that's the part that's out of your control. So you should really just focus on stuff that's within your control, which is, did I put in good time? Did I improve from where I was last month? Yeah. And I do want to point out improvement doesn't just mean it's not confined to just score improvement. Yes. That's something I realized is I was measuring improvements by just my score. But eventually I kind of realized that improvement, it's so broad. There's so many things that you have to work at improving. It's not just your LSAT score. You have to work on your confidence. You have to work on your strategy, your approach, your Mm -hmm. mindset Mm -hmm. to actually taking the test itself. Mm -hmm. Because at least for me, these are all things that kind of factored into my end performance and my, uh, my end result. Yeah, I would say even, you know, more broadly, I mean, the LSAT is teaching you how to at least the logical reasoning section is teaching how to reason logically. It's teaching how to, in other words, evaluate arguments and make up arguments. And that's a life skill. At a micro level, it's a skill that's applicable to the section of the test. Going a little bit beyond that, it is a super important skill for law school where you're, all you're doing in law school is just reading arguments. And then, you know, like for the rest of your life, you might not realize it, but so much of what happens in day-to-day communication is just arguments in implicit, you know, not explicitly, right, with the because of X, Y, Z, therefore ABC, right? But implicitly, that's actually what it is. Yeah. 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 And I think that's a great point that you touched on, too, is that look at it as not only are you improving your LSAT abilities, you're also just taking a step back, you're improving your overall just intelligence and understanding of new material and especially material that's going to be beneficial to the field that you're going into in the future. So yeah, I think I think I mean, that approach, that framework, I hope at least is helpful to take some of that pressure off. Mm-hmm. Should we say a few more words about LR or move on to RC? Yeah, yeah, sure. I will say a couple more words because I feel like I didn't really get into the specifics of actual yeah. logical reasoning and arguments themselves. I was talking more about my approach. In regards to logical reasoning itself, I think the game changer for me was really approaching questions 
in the same way for the most part. And by that, I mean, obviously, you know, some questions are arguments, some are just stimulus sets of informations, you know, our premises mm-hmm. are, but I mean, more so in my actual approach of how I would read each question, mm-hmm. referential phrasing, mm-hmm. parsing through each question, mm-hmm. and then kind of trying to put it into this framework of premise, premise, therefore conclusion, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If it was applicable. And for me, once I really started applying that, I realized that a lot of these arguments are actually quite bad. You know, I think early on in the LSAT studies, it just goes completely over your head. Mm -hmm. You don't really sometimes even see, at least I didn't see a problem with some of the arguments. And that's also largely because I wasn't looking through it through that framework of premise, premise, therefore conclusion. Yeah. Is this a valid argument? Yeah. Is must this conclusion follow? Right, you know? right. And I think you quickly realize when you start thinking about it like that, that no, this conclusion does not follow, right. you know, 98% of the time. Yeah. yeah. So that was pivotal. And also, I think Ellen Cassidy has this approach where she suggests, and I wouldn't say this is novel by any means, but she, I guess, wrote it out in her book where you would, after reading the stimulus, you would kind of try to think about a weak point or an objection to the argument. Mm, yes. A weak spot. Yeah. And that is something that is huge, I think, very important for practicing, yeah. especially when you're doing it on time. Yeah. Don't even look at the answer choices. Right. Yes. Just read that stimulus yes. over and over again, however many times it takes till you can understand yeah. So you have a very lucid understanding of what's going on. Yeah. And then think about what's problematic about this. Yeah. You know, this conclusion that the author is trying to draw. Yeah. Based on his support, on the support that he has. And oftentimes you'll get better along the way, but you'll realize that a lot of the objections that you have are actually going to be in the answer choices. That's right. Yeah. The answer often is in the stimulus, not not in the answers, ironically enough. That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about your reading comp. How was that? Was that one of your weaker or stronger sections when you started and how'd you improve? So I think I started reading comp relatively strong, I would say, yeah. based on some of the people that I've seen. I think I started around getting a 17 to 19, correct? So like a minus 10 to minus 8. Yeah. That sort of range. Yeah. But Reading comp is a section that I tackled last, and boy, was it the hardest to improve. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's like a universal truth for everyone. Yeah. But barring the 0.5% of people who start off with like a minus three or. Right, right. Yeah, I was stuck at that minus eight, 10 range for. God, months. Mm -hmm, Months mm -hmm. before I even got to like a minus six. I remember that first breakthrough going from like a minus eight to a minus six or a minus five. And I said, okay, wow, you can actually improve. Yeah. <laughs> Reading comp. Yeah. And uh, shortly, of course, in true LSAT fashion, the next section after that was a minus eight. Again. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I really. I really had to change my approach to reading comp because I realized that score that I was getting in reading comp was just a reflection of my reading ability at that point and how I was just reading a passage. And I was just kind of reading and going through the passage. I didn't really have a strategy in mind. I wasn't really doing... I I knew, obviously, of your low-res summaries and stuff. And I thought I was doing it in my head, Mm -hmm. but I really wasn't. 
I kind of fooled myself into this mindset of, oh, I can just read the passage and really try to understand it. Oh, 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 oh. You know, under time, and then I'll be able to answer the questions. Oh, okay, so like maybe implicitly you're thinking the low-res structural summary would just form on its own. I don't have to do any explicit exactly. explicit work to, exactly. to extract it out. Yeah, I think it was a realization for me, a distinct moment of realization for me when I was like, Oh, man, they really do mean what they say when they call this section reading comprehension. There is a distinct mental activity called reading comprehension. And for me, what that meant in detail was to have a structural understanding of the passage because, you know, it's long. It's like a lot longer than LR. So because of the length, there are different levels of engagement with the text. With LR, it's so short. There really is only one level of engagement, right? You, can, you just have to be super detail-focused. But with reading comp, that might just be one paragraph out of like four paragraphs, right? So you can engage with the passage at that level of detail, but because of its sheer length, there's another level of engagement, the higher level, the low-resolution low level, which is maybe you can think of it as like a bird's-eye level, so you don't see the details. But, but the structure emerges, or at least... It should emerge if you think about it, if you try to extract the structure out of it. And that's actually a lot of what is meant by comprehending what you're reading is that structural comprehension, not at that super fine-grained detail level. Yeah, exactly what you just said. It took me a very long time to realize that. Yeah, I mean, me too. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, I think that's the kind of epiphany that everyone has with reading comp yeah. eventually is they realize okay there's no real way around this it's more or less designed yeah it's designed like that that's know, right with 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 that in mind you know i was doing that for a very long time and also just like with logical reasoning i was doing um i uh reverted to just doing reading comp sections on time mm, okay and i took i took the same approach where if i can't get a certain score untimed well there's pretty much zero chance of me getting it timed. right right you know yeah. so i i went at rc just like i did lr kept going till i was zero to minus one and then i reintroduced the timing aspect and it didn't go as smoothly as it did with logical reasoning mm -hmm. to say the least mm -hmm. it was just Plateau after plateau with reading comp, and then also just, I don't want to say regressing, but at least on paper, regressing. Right. And I realized, what's the real difference between reading comp and logical reasoning? Because obviously, more or less, there's a fundamental similarity between the two. Mm -hmm. Reading comp is essentially just a, a very, very long logical reasoning question mm -hmm. that is testing more than just the argument that's being presented. You know, it's testing, are you really paying attention to all these other factors outside of the argument too? You know, like the author's attitude or the structure of what's happening in each paragraph. So... It wasn't really until I started to think about it through that lens that I realized I'm going to have to just condition myself to a stay completely focused throughout each passage because I realized obviously logical reasoning, it's broken up into each question and each question has its own text, its own stimulus. So you can get away with small lapses of losing focus because to reread the stimulus, it's a relatively lower cost than it is in reading comprehension. Yes. That's what I found. For me, that meant finding a way to actively engage and make sure that I am being very strict with myself as I read. Earlier on, I would always often just read something and then kind of just like 
maybe trick myself or fool myself into like, yeah, 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 okay, sure, I got it. But it wasn't until I started pausing more or less after every sentence and saying, okay, um, yeah, okay, I have like at least a surface level understanding of what's going on here. Right. And then obviously I did that after every paragraph and it was just something really basic for me in terms of how to just kind of summarize the paragraph rather. Yeah. So, okay, um, this is the author introducing his hypothesis or someone else's hypothesis. And I would also pay attention to like, am I getting anything from the author's opinion or anything of his attitude? Has anything been given away? Right. You know what I mean? Has he showed his hand yet? Yeah. In any way? Yeah. And that meant paying attention to key words, words that could form opinions or denote attitudes in any way. And then I just started practicing that untimed for every single paragraph and for every passage and every paragraph, obviously. And I wasn't doing the questions. I would just do that with RC passage after RC passage. Nice. Till I got to the point where I was quite confident that I'm doing a good enough job understanding both on a structural level yep. and on a surface, I, I guess you could say like detailed level. Right. Because obviously you're not reading for every single detail. Right. But the key is when you have that structural guide or understanding, you know exactly where to go to find those details. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't really until I did that and then practiced it a lot <laughs> that I kind of started to see gains in reading comp. I went from minus six to then minus three to minus five. Then I got my first minus one. And then I was stuck in like the minus four or five area for quite some time. And I will say something that was really important too with reading comp is having conviction, <laughs> you know, in your with yourself and your your confidence in selecting answer choices because something that I was doing, it was just a really, really bad habit. Yeah. Is I would spend so much time in reading comp. Sometimes I would end up sinking like a minute and a half, even two minutes, and I would end up picking the same exact answer choice that I already was drawn to after 15 seconds, 20 mm, seconds. Yeah. The root cause of that is that I was going and I was trying to find support. Much like in logic games, I was being too meticulous with my answer choice selection. Right. And I was being too rigorous. And you just don't have There's time to do that. There's always yeah. a cost. Yeah. 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 And, you know, at this point, I already knew I'd heard you say it over and over again. You know what I mean? There's an opportunity cost. I, I know this, you know, yeah. I also studied wow. economics and you have wow. to you have to keep that in mind. <laughs> this is this is bringing me back to when we did the during the pandemic, when we did the uh, <laughs> lockdown study sessions. And yeah, I remember I remember saying that to you <laughs> about yeah, the opportunity yeah. cost. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But it's still there's still that emotional aspect yes. involved when you're doing it timed where you find yourself It'll be fast. Getting... I'm just going to check real quick. It's yeah. Like I just need to be sure that it's this answer. Yeah. Yeah. And you get attached, mm -hmm. you know, you get attached to these questions, you know, you think, oh, this is an easy question that I should bag. And I just, I just want to check. But ultimately, I realized I had to, just, it's not feasible to do that, especially much like that realization in logical reasoning, when I said I was doing them untimed and realizing what questions are just going to be questions that probably won't be a good investment of time. That's right. Especially under time. That's right. I had to do the same thing in reading comprehension. Yeah. Yeah. And what what I realized doing that in reading comprehension, being that aggressive, is that it actually sometimes really served to my benefit. 
So for instance, when I say that, I mean, let's say I'm the last passage mm -hmm. and there's just time is running down. I've had situations where I've had like maybe five minutes, <laughs> six minutes for the last passage. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I mean, this is before I definitely fine tuned everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And when I was in those situations, sometimes I would end up scoring better in that wow. passage yeah. than when I would have like nine, 10 minutes. Because you're just like, that's just focuses, it focuses you and it takes away the opportunity for you to waste time. Right. It's not giving you a choice. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, if you don't just go with your gut, mm -hmm. your first mm -hmm. answer choice that you see and are attracted to, well, then you're not going to finish the section and you're going to end up guessing on questions. It's kind of amazing, right? And what it shows you is that, wait a second, maybe I don't need to be as meticulous, as careful in the other sections. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's the calibrating. That's the calibration of your confidence. A lot of people are overconfident or underconfident or both. That's the hard part because you're likely simultaneously overconfident and underconfident, depending on which question you're talking about. So that's the calibration that has to be done. You want to make sure yes. that your, your confidence level is, you know, you can't help but be over or under, right? You can't be just right. It's very difficult to be just right, but you want to be as close to just right as you can. Yeah. And one more thing I do want to add about reading comp, something that also helped me get, I guess, more aggressive with the answer choices was also having a prephrase in mind, even for the reading comp questions. Right. And that's something that you can only do once you truly start to read the passages the correct way. Yes. Yes. If you don't, then you're going to be lost and you won't really have any sort of anticipation, any sort of idea in mind. So, And with a lot of practice, I mean, like the way you were practicing, it sounds like without looking at the questions, just purely based on the passage, it sounds like you're treating every passage the same. It's like, look, this passage, I don't care what the questions are going to ask. I am going to answer the following set of questions. What's the main point? What's the author's attitude? I'm going to have a short, low-res structural summary of each paragraph so that they link together. That just preps you. That's like weightlifting training. It just preps you for whatever specific exercise you're going to have to do later. Yeah. And just to be explicit, I was doing this on my laptop. I was typing out yeah. everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was typing out a low res. I was typing out a high res. I was typing out the attitude and everything. That's really great. Eventually, obviously, you find out how to do it. Maybe just a condensed version. Yeah. Under time with in your head. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. Yeah, but to get to that goal of being able to do a condensed version in your head, you have to. There's no shortcut. Uh, you just have to go through the tedious work of writing it out, typing it out. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, maybe I, I want to hear you talk about persistence, perseverance, and the external factors at work. Because we didn't reveal this just yet, but your 171, that was your third official LSAS score. You had yes. two others before that, right? You had an October 2020 flex of 160 and an April 21 flex of 164. So from your first official LSAT score to your last official LSAT score, that was an 11-point improvement. So that's incredible. And obviously, it took a lot of self-confidence and just perseverance, right? So maybe if you can talk to us about that. Yeah, definitely. So I ended up taking that first October test about maybe a year or 13 months, well, 14 months after I had started studying. Mm -hmm. And I really was very, very strict. I was trying to be very strict with myself in terms of, I believe you're the one who said this, don't take the actual test until you're scoring at least at or above your, your goal score. Yeah. So when I took October, I had been scoring in the high 160s, low 170s. Mm -hmm. But on, on my worst day, I could hit like a mid 160s, you know, right. like a 165. Right. But 
I wasn't extremely consistent, but I, I knew like I was capable of scoring at least in the high 160s. Yeah. I thought blind review at that point was already 178 plus every time I had a good understanding of what to do. But the first October test that I took was logic games first. And I blew through the first three games, not feeling great. I remember I didn't feel great about one or two of them. Like I might have missed missed a couple of questions here or there. But then I got to the last game with, I want to say like 11 or 12 minutes left. And I completely froze. Wow. Just completely, everything just went out the window. I was trying to synthesize the information that was being given to me. And I couldn't even think of how am I going to present this information on a piece of paper. Wow. With so much time to spare, too. With so much time. Man. And it wasn't, I think maybe when I got to like four minutes, it clicked. And I was like, oh, oh okay, okay. But at that point, I already lost my opportunity. Yeah. And I think that game had six, I think it had six questions. Or Wow. Yeah. From that, the rest of the test, pretty much, it's hard when you know that you completely ruined your chances at achieving your goal score already mm-hmm. from the first section. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 very tough mentally to go and say, okay, well, let me try and at least salvage the score. And that was something that I failed at yep. at doing. I couldn't get it out of my head that first section. Just the rest of the test, that's what I was thinking about. And obviously, I don't need to say that you're going to pay the cost of doing that. Yeah. So after October, I actually, funny enough, I didn't even look at my score. I didn't find out my official October score until April. Oh, my girlfriend, I asked her to check it for me. And I just said, like, oh, could you just tell me if it's, you know, <laughs> what is it? Is it low 160s? Is it mid 160s? You know, because yeah. I, I knew in my head, I had already thought of the worst possible scenario. Right. I was like, okay, it's going to be like maybe a mid low 160s. Yeah. You know? yeah. And she just said, it's, it's, it's below a 162. <laughs> But it is in the 160s. <laughs> so, so I, obviously, you want to give yourself... For me, I already didn't care because it was just a failed attempt in my head. Right. But in my head, I was like, okay, so it's a 162 or 161 rather. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a below 162. Yeah. So I just was so upset that I didn't even look at it. Right, right. And nor did I want to look at it because it was just like it's silly looking back at it now but it was just a constant reminder of actually seeing the score on paper yeah psychologically yeah because it, i mean it was so much lower than yeah i think my low end like i said yeah occasionally was like a 165 or 160 maybe six and that ended up being six points lower than my low end yeah at that point Earlier on, I had said that I got very discouraged at certain points throughout my studies. And it doesn't help when you have your friends or luckily for me, I'm not so close with my family. So I didn't really have them hounding me about anything. And they're not really into education or anything like that. So they didn't really know what I was doing. Right. My friends that did, my friends who were in law school or who were doing their masters or whatever, working two jobs or just like, they were all like, are you really still studying for this test? Are you even going to go to law school? Right. What are you doing here? Yeah. And I guess in their mind, they thought they were being supportive, telling me like, oh, you need to just take the test and apply to law school. Right. Maybe they don't understand. I mean, obviously, they don't understand that you can definitely improve at this test. Yes. For me, it was just like tuning out the noise. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's your life. 
this is a decision you're making. It's a journey that you're embarking upon that's going to have probably a significant impact on your future. And that law school aside, just the journey of the LSAT itself, it will really teach you a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it really will. And the people, even those who are resilient, and maybe they don't end up with their goal score, because let's face it, statistically, that's just those, like you said, those statistics are there for a reason. Yeah. Everyone can't have those scores. But I want to say some costs are going to be sunk. Remember that when you made that decision. And Secondly, you're likely still going to make a very, very significant improvement if you're doing everything right. So maybe you don't get, or if you're scoring for 165, maybe you don't end up with that 165. Maybe you end up with a 162 or even a 160. But you're still, if you're starting from a 140, that's still a huge, huge improvement. And it's something to be immensely proud of, especially when you make that decision that, okay, I'm going to try for this score. You have to come to terms with the fact that your time could be sunk and you don't end up with that score. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and it's really important to set these goals for yourselves, but also be very kind to yourself. Be very accepting of yourself. And that's why earlier we talked about this. You Really, the only metric, I think, the only healthy metric is just see if you're hitting these measurable activity goals that are within your control. For example, you say, I'm going to spend three hours a day every, I know, three days a week studying. And like, that's something that's within your control that you can achieve or not achieve. And you should measure your success according to those metrics. Not like, I'm going to go out there and get a 168. And every time you don't get a 168, I mean, it hurts, right? It really hurts. But I don't think you should let that be a reflection of your self-worth or become identified with that. Yeah, I couldn't emphasize enough what you just said. Really, really important. The reality is that some people, they can do everything right. They can put in the work. And, you know, some people, it's a standardized test. There's that time pressure element. Everyone deals with it differently. Ultimately, at least in my opinion, there's a little bit of luck involved. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And there's no way around it. There's a little bit of luck involved. Yeah. So just always also keep that in mind. I remember I guessed on a question on my real LSAT. I was running out of time on RC. I had I had two back-to-back RCs. And th- there's no way around the fact that luck will either be on your side or not. Right? And you can't. That's out of your control. Yeah. And, and that's I, why I really liked what you said. And it's something that I realized and I really tried to pay attention to is just Focus on what you can control. And that's how you approach studying for this test, how disciplined you are. And that means with your studying and also within your studying, you know, with your strategy to taking each section, how disciplined are you going to be to kind of just focus on controlling what you can? Yeah. Because at the end of it, that's that's the only thing you're going to be able to walk in on test day or I guess (laughs) with the flex, walk into your testing room bedroom or whatever yeah and sit down and do is control how you take the test that's right something i did want to address just real quickly before i forget was that 164 as well oh right right yeah between your 160 yeah between your 160 and your 171 you had that 164 yeah that 164 again was at that point i had been consistently in the in the low 170s with even like the mid 170s here and there sprinkled in and Again, the same thing happened, but this time not with logic games, and this time not with my first section, but my last, which was logical reasoning, and I took it, and the first two sections felt okay, logic games felt good, reading comp, okay, you know, but then I got to logical reasoning, and I, once again, I blanked. Yeah. 
I completely blanked. It was like almost like PTSD from the first one. Oh, no. Because I just remembered that feeling of almost helplessness. Yeah. Like what's going on? My brain is abandoning me right now. It's just not functioning. And I remember thinking to myself in the moment, of course, is this the same test? Yeah. I was taking it and I was like, it felt like I was seeing multiple correct answers to, to each LR section, you know, and I couldn't retain what I was reading. And ultimately, you know, I'm sure that's a section I did poorly on. And mm -hmm. again, at that point, that 164 ended up being way below my bottom range. For me, I think I realized after that, okay, I'm one of those people who's going to score significantly below their range on test day. And at that point, I really came to grips with the fact that maybe the 170s won't happen. Mm -hmm. But I know at least I'm going to try a couple more times and I'm going to try to at least I know I could at least get into that maybe like upper 160s range. Mm -hmm. So I hoped <laughs> as fate would have it. It's just so funny how, how things work out sometimes. My first two experiences taking the flex were actually perfect in terms of my testing conditions. Oh, okay. It couldn't have gone any smoother. I wasn't interrupted once. I started perfectly on time. You know, it was silent. Yeah. And in comes the third attempt. <laughs> and wow, I started, I was set, I think, for like 9.45. Yeah. And I started at like 11.30. What? Yeah. What happened? There was just technical difficulties. It wouldn't let me connect. Oh my God. To Proctor U. Yeah. Every time I tried to start the test. And they were just pawning me off one proctor to the next or the technical difficulties, you know, oh the technical God. experts. Yeah. And I was, it's tough because I, I prepared so well for this, this time around. Mentally, I said, I'm just going to go in and stick to my strategy. I'm going to control what I can. Yeah. But I got good sleep. I ate well. I did everything right. I meditated. I did everything that I could control. And then, of course, on test day, it was completely out of my hands right. what was happening. Right. And then throughout the entire test as well, <laughs> I my test got stopped. Like not stopped rather, but I guess the proctor had taken control without pausing it. Oh. Like on three separate occasions where I probably I would say lost like a minute and I was literally yelling, pause the test. Yeah. Pause the test. Yeah. Because they weren't pausing the test. Oh man. And on top of that, they kept interrupting me to tell me to like, oh, move your hand or stuff like this. And oh. of course, whether it's LR reading comp, when you're focused and right. you're reading something yeah. and that happens, you have to just reread. Right. So I left the test very frustrated yeah. because I thought, wow, again, now I'm going to have to take this test again. Right. Because I thought, but with that in mind, I, I left saying, well, at least I didn't have that horrible feeling right. of bombing any sections. Right, right. Just blanking you know? and not knowing what to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. I just went off of that and I hoped that all the hard work yeah. that I had put in at that point would just carry me through kind of. Yeah. Because I, I came very, very close to canceling. Right. Based on the experience and trying to get a retake. Yeah. But something in my head, just obviously my objective experience in terms of how I felt, yeah. like not bombing a section just said okay you know what just just see just let it yeah. be you'll always retake it in right. the worst case and right then, and then that was it <laughs> <laughs> that was it yeah thanks to the interrupting proctor maybe the three interrupt <laughs> no i'm kidding probably you probably would have done a lot better had they not interrupted you but <laughs> yeah but i mean hey i'm happy and part of me was thinking about a retake yeah to be quite honest because yeah. at that point i had been scoring in the mid 170s right. and also like high 170s right. on occasions yeah 
I mean, at that point, you're just playing with margins that are. Yeah. It's it's just it just felt foolish to me to just go and try to retake that, you know, on the hopes of scoring one or two or three points better. Yeah. When the LSAT is the LSAT. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Wow, what an incredible story! Thanks so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the platform to share it. Of course. Thanks again, and take care. Thanks. Bye bye. Hi everyone, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you got some good advice that you can implement in your own studies. If you're prepping for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at sevensage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself, and see you next time.